So good to be together this morning. <clears throat> Years ago, um, our church board meetings, we meet once a month, they always began with a brief devotional. Perhaps like me, you've been in meetings that a devotional begins short time in God's word to help frame the work that's about to be done. Well, I calculated that in my 16 years serving here at HBIC, I've been in approximately 175 church board meetings. That's a lot of church board meetings, never mind all the other committees and commissions and ministry teams. But of all of these, there's only one devotional that stands out in my memory. In this particular meeting, it was sometime in early 2008. Chris Book was then the chair of our church board, and he shared with us about the term, my people. Now, I don't necessarily go to a church board meeting expecting God to speak to me um, about something that I need to hear. But isn't it just like God to show up and speak to our hearts when we least expect it? So it was one of those uh, cherished moments when God lifted my heart to a higher plane and gave me a truth that I've thought about many, many times throughout these years. Chris's theme was my people, and he asked us to think about some of the passages in which God uses this phrase, my people. So members of the church board shared various scriptures with one another, like Ruth 1.16, in which Ruth says to her mother-in-law, Naomi, your people will be my people and your God, my God. Or like Ezekiel 36, where God says, you will be my people and I will be your God. Or 2 Chronicles 7.14, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Or 2 Corinthians 6.16 was shared, I will live with them and walk among them and I will be their God and they will be my people. And then as if thinking about how God has made us his people and, his pro and how he promises his faithfulness to us weren't enough, Chris then led us in thinking about how as God's people, we're called to be my people to one another. For me, it's been a phrase that I've carried in my heart for the many years since then. You are my people. I am your people. Um, God calls us to belong to one another. We aren't just a group of people who happen to be at the same place Sunday after Sunday to worship the Lord. Instead, we're a group of people who choose to worship and serve together, to labor together, to care for one another, to experience the good and bad of life with one another, to encourage each other, to challenge each other, to need one another to be committed to one another, to be followers of Christ together, to be interconnected. Just as we are my people to the Lord, we are also my people to one another. And it's this truth of the body of Christ being my people, being family with each other, that we come to today's passage in the book of Acts. We've been looking at Acts for a number of weeks, the church then and how that impacts the church now and we'll be reading acts chapter 20 verses 13 to 38 before we get to that i want to just give a little bit of background because it just kind of jumps into the middle of a, a story in a sense in chapter 19 of acts um 
Paul had traveled to Ephesus. This is part of what was considered Paul's third missionary journey. And he taught about the kingdom of God in the synagogue in Ephesus for three months, and then he ran into some pushback from the synagogue leader. So from there, he and his uh, companions, his disciples, had discussions in the lecture hall of Tyrannus for two years. They met daily and lectured and talked and discussed and answered questions. And the scriptures say that God did miraculous things through Paul. Many people came to follow Jesus and um, through Paul's ministry, through his teaching. For instance, some of the people gave up their practice of sorcery. They burned their scrolls, and the scripture says they were worth 50,000 drachma. To set that in context, one drachma was the equivalent, it was a silver coin, it was the equivalent of a day's worth of work. So 50,000 drachma would be the equivalent of 160 years worth of daily work. That's a lot of um, sacrifice of worldly things and of idols in coming to faith in Jesus. Well, Paul's intent, he tells us in Acts 19.21, was to go to Jerusalem, to pass through Macedonia and Achaia, which is Greece, and then after visiting Jerusalem, he intended to go on to Rome, and then we're told in Romans 15 that he also, from Rome, intended to go to Spain, which for him, Spain was the ends of the earth. It was the ends of the known world at that time. And Paul was um, seeking to obey Jesus' commission to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Well, he sent two of his fellow workers ahead of him to Macedonia, and he stayed in Ephesus a little bit longer. And while he was still in Ephesus, a great disturbance broke out. It was almost a riot in the city. Um, those who were profiting from the worship of the goddess Artemis were upset with Paul and, and his followers. They were teaching um, that, th that these idols that they were worshiping were worthless. And so that the artisans who made silver statues of the goddess Artemis, they were losing their livelihood. And they were upset about Paul's ministry. And so this, this uh, riot broke out in the city and threatened, um, threatened them. And the whole city was in an uproar. So at the very end of chapter 19, the city clerk um, quiets the uproar, gets them to um, go back to their homes. And Paul, uh, we told in verse 1 of chapter 20, Paul calls his disciples together, takes some time to encourage them. And then he says goodbye, leaves Ephesus, and, and heads to Macedonia. Um, traveling through the province of Macedonia, he was encouraging the people, and then he finally arrived in Greece. He stayed in Greece for three months, and his intention was to set sail from Greece to Syria. And so, so here's Greece. He could have just got in a boat and gone across the water, landed in Syria, but he learned of... of um, opposition that would be facing him if he did that and so instead he decided to go back up through Macedonia and travel once again um, the way that he had come. He and his companions went to Philippi, they spent the Passover there, they sailed for Troas and they stayed there for seven days and then as they're leaving Troas that's where our story picks up in verse 13. <clears throat> Acts 20 13 to 38. 
Scripture says, we went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Azos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Azos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilena. The next day, we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that, we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. And now I, commit to you, now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What, they, what grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Lord, we thank you today for your word and for this uh, time in the life of Paul and his followers and in the church. We pray, God, that you would speak to us through these words, that you would um, impact our lives today with looking back at the church earlier. Lord, help us to listen to you and to your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. It is a very warm up here. So this speech by Paul was uh, the only speech recorded in Acts by him that was addressed to only Christians. All of his other speeches 
were um, explaining the gospel, defending the gospel. In this case, however, Paul's talking to believers only. And so it's a much more personal address to them, um, less, less um, apologetic, less trying to explain the gospel and the kingdom. When I generally think of Paul, I tend to think of his intellect and his gifting and his leadership, of his letters that he wrote and of the doctrine that he helps us to understand. I'm not sure that I often think about his heart and his emotions and his relationships and his love for people. How, how about you? Are you like me? That, that's not always what's in your mind when you think of Paul. But Acts 20 gives us a glimpse into his heart and his priorities. To him, the church supports, and that support takes on various forms. We're going to be looking today at four ways that the church supports. First of all, to him, it was very practical. During those couple years of living and laboring in Ephesus, he wrote two of his letters. He wrote 2 Corinthians and he wrote Romans during that time. And we know from both of these letters, from Romans chapter 15 and 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, that Paul was in the midst of taking a collection um, from the churches in Macedonia and Achaia, a collection that would be given to the church in Jerusalem. And, and that, that collection was perhaps a main purpose behind his third missionary journey, that he would go from place to place to collect their gifts. And so it's of significance that Paul stopped in so many places. To us, when we read it, it feels a bit tedious. He went here, he went here, he went here, he left here, he went here, he was here for this many days. It feels tedious. But it's amazing to think about the purpose of those visits and the effect that they had, both in the teaching and ministry of Paul, but also in the collecting of the gift that was to go to Jerusalem. The church in Jerusalem was suffering from poverty. And Paul invited the churches in the Gentile world to um, take collections and to give a gift that then would be brought to help to meet the needs of the church in Jerusalem. So support to Paul, first of all, comes in the form of giving. He, he not only invited the churches to give, but then Paul talks about how he himself worked hard, how he didn't covet their gold or their silver or their clothing, but his hands supplied his own need and the needs of his companions. I think that his work possibly um, provided for even more, because Paul goes on to say, by this kind of work, talking about his own, by this kind of work, we must help the weak, suggesting that he himself was also giving towards the needs of others. And then Paul quotes Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Where is that in the Gospels, where Jesus says, it's more blessed to give than to receive? Well, actually, it's not in any of the Gospels. We don't have a record of Jesus saying that from the Gospel writers. At the end of, God, of John's Gospel, he said, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. And presumably, Jesus didn't just do other things, but he also said other things that weren't recorded by the gospel writers, but that were uh, passed down through oral tradition by the disciples. And so um, we can 
have assurance, confidence that Jesus did say it is more blessed to give than to receive. He did say something along the same vein in Matthew chapter 10, verse 8, when he said, freely you have received, freely give. And there's also a Jewish text from about 200 years before Jesus' day, which says, don't let your hand be stretched out when it's time to receive and closed when it's time to give. Don't let your hand be stretched out when it's time to receive and closed when it's time to give. For most of us, it's not easy to ask people to give money. But it is easier to do so when there's a compelling need. I, I know how difficult it is because I've spent the last several years, for instance, doing something that I've never wanted to do, to ask people for money in order to help the church in Zimbabwe to raise funds to build a medical clinic in their no-no mission district. In the church in Zimbabwe, they have a couple urban districts, Bulawayo and Harare. They have access to medical care. And actually, this past spring, I, I heard that uh, Cure International built a new children's orthopedic hospital in Bulawayo, Zimbabwe, so they have even more access to medical care. I'm really excited about that for them. Then there's the rural districts of the church. If you're familiar with Brethren in Christ World Missions at all, perhaps these names are familiar. Matopo, Mshibezi, Pumula, Wanezi. All of these mission stations have medical facilities that the missionaries and the churches built years ago. But the No-No Mission is the only mission station of the church that was begun um, solely developed solely by the Zimbabwean church, not by missionaries. It's the only indigenous mission station in, in the Zim church, and the people in their region don't have yet any access to medical care. The closest medical facility is 50 miles away. So in 2018, when I got to make my second visit to Zimbabwe, I had a day where I was taken to the mission station. That was hours outside of Bulawayo. And I got to meet the people working to have a clinic for their community. I got to see the site and the building plans. And I saw the bricks that they had purchased. And at that time, the only thing holding them back was waiting for a government-approved builder who could oversee the work, a wait that actually took a long time. At that time, I also got to meet the co-pastor of the church, the No-No Church. Her name is Mrs. Moyo. Her husband had been the overseer of the district. In their system, the bishop is the national director and the overseers are like our bishop of our conference, so they call it the overseer of the district. Her husband was the overseer of the district and when he passed away, they made her the co-pastor of the church. I learned from the bishop that Mrs. Moyo had lost a grandson who died of something curable because of a lack of access to medical care. And that was the event in the No-No Church that precipitated them developing plans to, to build a medical clinic in their community. That very personal experience of loss motivated them to continue to work on the building through all these years of difficulty and economic strife and um, having to redo the plans and all sorts of things. The, currently, the building's at roof height and they're needing that last push to be able to build the roof and plaster the walls and finish the clinic. 
It's not easy to ask people for money, but it's easier to do when there's a compelling need that you know about. And that's, that was Paul's situation. And that's the situation with the NoNo Clinic and so many of the other projects that BIC World Missions has um, offers for us to be able to give to. They feel like the same situation that Paul was facing. That Paul knew that the part of the church he knew over here was hurting and part of the church that he knew over here had the resources needed to help that hurting church. The same is true for us today. Um, the people of the Church of Jesus were all called to give generously and sacrificially in order to help meet needs. So we see in Acts 20 that, first of all, the church supports through giving. We also learn from Paul that the church uh, supports through teaching. Just as Paul thought it would be wrong to withhold financial resources that one has in plenty that could be used to help those who are living without, he also would have held the same principle true for spiritual resources. He says in verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. So we can picture Paul spending many of his days making tents with his hands while at the same time welcoming visits from others and teaching them and answering their questions and helping them to understand what it means to follow Christ and spurring them on in their faith. We know that he spent time even late into the night preaching and teaching. The passage just before today's passage in verses 7 to 12 tell the story of Paul preaching late into the night and a young servant boy named Eutychus was there listening to him. He probably had been laboring hard all day, came to hear Paul talk at night, was sitting in the third story window, Paul's preaching and uh, Eutychus falls, falls asleep, falls down three stories and is presumed um, to be dead. The scripture says that Paul threw himself, ran down, threw himself on Eutychus and the young man was alive. Um, he went back upstairs, broke bread, and then says that they talked until daylight. So we have this image of Paul teaching, and Paul teaching, and Paul teaching, and Paul teaching. I imagine that some of that middle-of-the-night teaching was probably with this young man, Eutychus, who had just experienced the miraculous power of God. Can you imagine Paul teaching him more of what he might have needed to know about the Lord and his ways. Well, in verse 19, Paul reminds the Ephesian leaders that he had gone through a lot when he was with them, that there were severe tests and many tears. But in spite of the plots against him and in spite of the uh, oppression by the Jews, he didn't hesitate to preach about repentance and faith with both Jews and Greeks. In essence, he was saying that nothing could stop him from preaching and teaching and testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Is there anything that stops us from doing so? Is there anything that stops you from doing so? Howard Hendricks uh, wrote a book called Teaching to Change Lives. And in it, he tells of, a Sunday of speaking at a Sunday school convention. That used to be a thing years ago. I don't think they have too many of those anymore, but there used to be Sunday school conventions, and he was speaking at one at Memorial, Moody Memorial Church in Chicago. 
And during the lunch break, he and a couple other of the speakers went together to a little hamburger shop right across the street. There were three of them and there was a table for four. And so they noticed that there was this older woman who was also from the conference. They could tell from the bag she was carrying, it kind of identified her. So they invited her to have lunch with them at this hamburger shop and as they sat down with her, they learned that she was 83 years old and she had traveled to Chicago from the upper uh, Michigan Peninsula during the night. She had driven all, ridden a Greyhound bus all night to get to this convention. And uh, they asked her why and she said that she wanted to learn something that would make me a better teacher. They asked her why because she had told them that she was uh, teaching in a church that had 65 people in the Sunday school total, but 13 of them were in her class. She taught a class of 13 junior high boys. Hendricks said, I thought at the time, most people who had a class of 13 junior high boys in a Sunday school of only 65 would be breaking their arms to pat themselves on the back, but not this woman. He, sa he said that um, 84 boys who had sat under her teaching through the years had become workers in full-time ministry. Age didn't stop this woman from obeying Jesus's commission to make disciples and to teach them everything that he commanded. I also read a few years ago a story that touched me deeply. It was a book by a missionary doctor, a story about a young man named Stanley from Kenya. Because of cancer, this young man, even though he had been a runner, had to have his leg amputated. To help him in his um, getting around, someone had fashioned a tree limb into a walking stick for him. The stick was six feet tall and two inches thick. He used it for support. He was able to propel himself along in a swinging motion by placing the pole ahead of himself and then hopping on his right foot to get to it. Well, Stanley had started a Sunday school class for young children at the ASAC primary school while he was a student at the secondary school there. But then he was, a year later, accepted at this Tenwick school, which is at the mission station where his amputation surgery had been. Uh, they thought that it would be better school for him, he'd be able to get around more easily there. But the new school presented a, a problem for him. Without money for a bus ride, how would he get from Tenwek to ASAC to teach the Sunday school class? And so Stanley solved the problem by walking seven miles both ways each week the entire school year so that he could keep teaching the class. It meant waking up at 5 a.m. every Sunday morning, and this gave him enough time to hobble the seven dusty, sometimes muddy miles to ASAC and back, all on one leg and a bent stick, the missionary said. So we have an 83-year-old woman and a young man with only one leg who, like Paul, had a passion to communicate God's truth and nothing could stop them. Among us, may there be such a passion to support others by teaching them. Paul also shared with the Ephesian leaders that he had not hesitated to proclaim to them the whole will of God. And he urged them to remember that for three years he never stopped warning them night and day with tears. 
What a description of Paul's ministry among them. A.W. Tozer in his book, The Set of the Sail, challenges us about this even today. He says, the fact is that the New Testament message embraces a great deal more than an offer of free pardon. It is a message of pardon for that God may be praised, but it's also a message of repentance. It's a message of atonement, but it's also a message of temperance and righteousness and godliness in the present world. It tells us that we must accept a savior, but it also tells us that we must deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. The gospel message is about the idea of change and separation from the world, of cross-carrying, and of loyalty to the kingdom of God, even to death. Tozer goes on that to offer a sinner the gift of salvation based upon the work of Christ, while at the same time allowing him or her to retain the idea that the gift carries with it no moral implications is to do him or her untold injury where it hurts them worst. He says we must have courage to preach the whole message. And this is the kind of courage that Paul had. We see in Acts 20 that in addition to giving, the church supports by teaching. And then the third way that we see in Paul is that the church supports through encouraging. We look back to verse 1, when Paul was still in Ephesus, Paul sent for the disciples, and after encouraging them, he said goodbye. In verse 2, we're told that he went through the province of Macedonia, speaking many words of encouragement. And then in our passage for this morning, while in Miletus, he encourages the Ephesian leaders once again. Paul was not only interested in establishing churches, but he was interested in encouraging and equipping them for when he was no longer going to be present with them. So the Greek word for encouragement, paraklesis, or the corresponding verb to encourage, parakaleo, they're words that are used in one form or another in more than a hundred times in the New Testament. I found it interesting that th those words are actually favorite words of Paul, both Paul and Luke. They both use some form of it more often than any other writer in the New Testament. The word for encouragement creates a picture. It means to be called alongside of. Gregory of Nyssa was an early church father and he expressed encouragement this way. Try to picture what he's saying. He says at horse races, the spectators intent on victory, shout their favorites, shout to their favorites in the contest. From the stands, they participate in the race with their eyes, thinking to incite the charioteer to keener effort, at the same time urging the horses on while leaning forward and flailing the air with their outstretched hand instead of a whip. We can picture that. We've, if, if we've not been to races, we've certainly been to sporting events where people jump up in the stands and they tell the person to run, run, and they put their hand in the same direction. Well, Gregory of Nyssa goes on, he says, I seem to be doing the same thing myself, most valued friend and brother. While you are competing admirably in the divine race along the course of virtue, I extort, urge, and encourage you vigorously to increase your speed. Paul came alongside the Ephesians, encouraging them, urging them on, committing them to God's grace. 
but he didn't miss, mince words. When he did it, he told them that they'd never see his face again. And he encouraged them to keep watch over themselves and over the flock. And he warned them that wolves might come in and um, hurt them and, and that some believers might come in and lead people away. But he assured them that God would be with them and he wants that truth to give them comfort. And that word for comfort literally means with strength. Calm is with, fort is part of fortis, strength. With strength is comfort. Hard things might be coming to Paul as well and he also needed encouragement. His desire was to finish his race and complete the task that the Lord had given him. The churches that he established, the believers that he led and taught and ministered to and worked with and listened to, they were likewise an encouragement to Paul. He talks about it in Romans chapter 1, verse 11, when he says, I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. There's a mutuality and encouragement, and we see in Acts 20 that the church supports through giving, the church supports through teaching, and the church supports through encouraging. And then lastly here in Acts, we see this kind of mutuality between Paul and the Ephesian leaders, not just in encouraging each other, but in truly loving one another. And it's that love is another way that the church supports. God calls us to love one another. I don't know of any place where he tells us that we have to like one another. And I don't know of any place where he tells us we have to agree with one another. But he very much tells us that we're to love one another. We see this in Paul and his followers. Their mutual love is perhaps most evidenced by this very touching scene as they say their final goodbyes to one another, starting at verse 36. Luke tells us that they knelt down together and prayed. We don't know the content of their prayer time. Wouldn't you love to eavesdrop in and hear them praying for one another? I would love to know uh, the content of their prayer. But it's not a stretch to imagine that the Ephesians prayed for Paul as they knew that he was going to face hard things going to Jerusalem. And he prayed for them, knowing that they were going to face hard things without um, his presence with them. And then they had spent over two years together in Ephesus, working together, laboring together, being together. And so I'm guessing that the prayer was even more personal than that, that they prayed for personal things for one another. When I was in college, I worked up in Maine at a Christian camp. Well, that's a delightful way to spend your summer, I will say, for college students uh, to go to a camp in Maine three blocks from the ocean for the summer. But during one of those summers, I met my friend Julie, who was from Seattle. I met her when I went to, there was a sister camp in Massachusetts, and I went there for a couple of weeks to work, and that's where she was working for the summer. And she invited me to pray with her when we had a brief break from our campers, we prayed together and we instantly became friends. Well, the next summer, Julie came back to the East Coast from Seattle and this time she came to serve as the director of the camp in Maine. Um, and so I spent the whole summer working closely with her. 
We were prayer partners, meeting together early most mornings to pray together and sharing with one another um, from our hearts, but we also shared fun times and uh, things that we were wrestling with whenever our free time might have overlapped. Well, when that summer was over and it was the last day to be in Maine, early in the morning, Julie and I got up and walked arm in arm the few blocks to the beach and enjoyed a special last time of sharing with one another and praying together beside the ocean. Really, as far as either of us knew, this would be the last time that we would see one another. Uh, though we had loved one another deeply, we really didn't think that we would ever on this earth be in the same place and see one another again. So as we talked and prayed together on the beach that morning, we shared tears and expressions of our love for each other. We extended the last moments together as long as possible. So when I read Luke's account of Paul and the Ephesians parting from one another, their tears, their embracing him, their kissing him, their grief that they would never see his face again, I can well imagine the feelings that those words um, might have brought in them, having felt them similarly myself. And many of us know the pain of saying goodbye, even saying a final goodbye to someone that we deeply love. Well, perhaps Paul and the Ephesian leaders had lingered there with one another, having difficulty saying goodbye, but Paul had a goal of arriving in Jerusalem in time for Pentecost, and that meant that he needed to get going, and he likely, likely the only witness to their time of kneeling and praying together was probably the, the um, captain of the vessel who was urging them on to get on his boat. So Luke's words in the first verse of chapter 21 help to round out the picture of their love for one another. In verse 21, it says, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed. So there's this literal tearing apart of Paul and the Ephesians. Paul's life had a deep impact on others, so much so that there was this real sorrow in his parting. Tony Campolo in his book, Who Switched the Price Tag, which was like a long time ago, I think the 1970s, but he asked the pointed question about the impact of our lives. He said, when you were born, you cried and everybody else was happy. The only question that matters is this, when you die, will you be happy and everybody else be crying? It's a question about how loving we are, the impact of our lives. Will people be crying when we're gone? The love between the Ephesians and Paul is palpable. Luke tells us what he saw and what he witnessed was this small group of believers kneeling and praying and weeping. I think it's one of the most tender scenes in scripture. There's this mutual affection between Paul and his friends and it was created and sustained by their common fellowship with the Lord Jesus. First Peter 1.22 urges us to love one another deeply from the heart. We see in Acts 20 that the church supports through giving, through teaching, through encouraging, and the church supports through loving. Well, Acts 20 is actually the conclusion to Paul's missionary travels. After he reaches Jerusalem, his travels after that are no longer as a missionary, but they are travels as a Roman prisoner. But most significantly, Acts 20 gives us a human 
loving picture of what it means for believers to become my people to one another. Paul paints an inspiring portrait for us of the church that supports. When we're my people to one another, we give to meet needs. We teach one another. We encourage one another. We love one another. The worship team is going to be coming. We're going to be singing our closing song together this morning. And as we do, and there'll be pastors uh, along the sides, if you have something that you'd like to pray about, we'd be delighted to pray with you. But as we sing, the question for all of us is, what must I do to help the church grow in our ministry of support? Must I give something more? Must I share of my own needs so that others can help? Must I commit to teach? Must I commit to learn? Must I look for ways to encourage? Must I take to heart the encouragement of others? Must I share more of myself in order to grow in love for my brothers and sisters? Must I open my heart to them as they share? May God help us here at HBIC to continue to grow in each of these areas of the church, supporting one another, giving, teaching, encouraging, and loving. May God bless us as we do that. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing our final song, The Servant Song. Will you let me be your servant? Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I might have the grace to let you be my servant too. We are pilgrims on a journey. We are siblings on the road. Walk the mile and bear the load. I will hold the Christ light for you in the nighttime of your fear. I will hold my hand out to you. Speak the peace. Love and agony. 
Master, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I might always have to. Let me be your servant too. Sing that last verse with me one more time, please. Brother, sister, let me serve you. Let me be as Christ to you. Pray that I may have the grace to let you be my servant that we have that in the body of Christ God has gifted all of us to be supports to one another. Our prayer is that as you go forth this week you may think through the ways that God is calling you not just to serve here in the church but in your community wherever you are whether you're in the campus or in a neighborhood whether you're at work or in school may all of us be thinking of ways that we can truly empower and be there with one another whether it's being home to one another comfort to one another strengthening one another praying for one another let's pray together our Father our God we thank you so much for the blessing of knowing you and being known by you. We thank you so much that you've chosen us to be your people. God, we pray now that as we depart, may we be encouraged not only by the word that we heard this morning, but be encouraged by your Holy Spirit that lives inside of us. God, help us to go forward as willing and able to serve you as we serve one another. God, give us the strength to comfort others. Give us the willingness to encourage one another. Give us the, the audacity to say, God, this is my gifting. This is who I am. I want to give it to you for your kingdom come. Lord, for our neighborhoods and our schools, for our families, for our, our houses, for our workplaces. Let us be a light where you've placed us. Let us be a light for your glory. Let us serve one another, support one another to draw everyone back home to you. In your holy and precious name we pray. Amen. God bless you all. Have a great week.